0: So welcome everyone to episode three of Role for Enterprise, in which we're going to talk about stupid stuff vendors do. We didn't introduce ourselves in the first episodes. Uh, As we said, we hadn't yet given you a reason to care about us, but now I think it might uh, become relevant. Uh, So my name's Dominic Wellington. You can find me on Twitter as at dwellington. And I work for a vendor. I work for MongoDB currently, and I've worked for vendors Uh, all my life as it happens. Uh, And I'm joined by uh, my colleagues, Zach. Zach, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Yes. Hey, everyone. Zach Salikakis. I, too, work for a vendor currently at
0: Appstra and previously has been an analyst. But most relevantly for today, uh, we have with us Mike Yanniro, the third leg of the stool. Uh, Mike, do you want to introduce yourself? Because it's going to be important what you do for this episode.
2: Yeah, so I'm on the other side of, uh, of the table from these gentlemen. Um, and I work for um, a multinational, um, basically doing IT for uh, a multinational manufacturing vendor. Um, so these gentlemen are typically trying to sell us solutions
0: or something of that nature. Definitely trying to sell you something. And so we thought it would be interesting to just compare those very different perspectives. So when it comes to the tech, we can talk about the tech and uh, we can come to a fairly objective point of view. But when it comes to selling the tech versus buying the tech, those are two very different experiences. And there's some things on both sides of that conversation that the other side always finds super, super annoying. And so we just thought that would be an interesting conversation to have. So, Mike, with you know, bearing in mind statutes of limitations and make sure not to uh, name the guilty parties, uh, unless you really, really want to, of course, but what's uh, some of the most annoying things that vendors pull uh, when they, they first come to you, when they try to get your attention for their latest shiny thing?
2: Yeah, you know, it, 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 so I, I would take it down two avenues, right? So there's always this almost... Um, trying to tell me how there's a fear of missing out on something if I don't do, you know, A, B, or C. Uh, meanwhile, we have like a business strategy that goes in a completely different way. So we have, you know, the, the clueless vendor here. And then there's um, there's the vendor who comes in and wants to give you just a bunch of free stuff, hoping that eventually you reciprocate and start to buy stuff, which, you, you know, from a business code of conduct position, you know, maybe that worked um, sometime in the eighties and early nineties. Um, but, you know, things have changed and, you know, it's it's just so frowned upon, and I, I think when vendors start to do that, they really lose, um, yeah, some credibility with us. Um, you know, I have a funny story, but I, so yeah, let's name out some vendors, right? So I've never bought anything from Nutanix. Yeah, they sell hardware. Um, yeah, all in one box. Great. Everybody does it now. You know, is there an advantage? Who who, who knows? But. I've had this like aggressive salesman always, you know, uh, trying to get a meeting and it's just like, you know, my time is limited. I don't want to waste time on meeting with someone on, on something that I'm, I'm not going to buy. And, uh, you know, I work at a manufacturing plant and and one day there's a there's a box that comes up to my desk. So here I have this box and and on it, it says like, hey, uh, dry ice inside, open as soon as you receive. And I'm like, this can't be. I mean, you know, the time this package arrived, the time it gets to my desk probably took maybe, a day all of a sudden i i open it and uh you know the dry ice smoke starts coming out and uh, there's a couple of tubs of like ben and jerry's ice cream and and by this time when i'm opening it and the smoke is coming out i I have like a a whole group at my desk all staring like what is this and yeah there's five tubs of ben and jerry's ice cream and and a note from the vendor saying like hey you know we really want to meet maybe we can have like an ice cream social or something and And I'm like, no, no way. I mean, this is just less like over the top. But, you know, I think uh, from from ice cream to to the sale, I mean, they just they just don't know the point we're at. Right. And I I still struggle with the targeting that that some of the vendors do. Right. Um, And I I don't know how you guys target, but I'd like to hear how you're targeting companies.
0: Ice cream is always good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a little bit like the a fake Rolex salesperson. Uh, he opens his jacket and he goes, Hey, don't you want one of these? You must want something. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just a bad look for everyone. Uh, as you say, even if you might have been considering that vendor before, uh, they pull a trick like that. And yeah, uh, now I'm not taking you seriously. You're not in my wavelength. Absolutely. Yeah. There are good and bad ways to do that. You can still try to persuade people uh, beyond just the, the feeds and speeds uh, of the product. But there's a lot more attention paid to that. Uh, you know, Scrupulous people were always careful not to let gifts sway their judgment. But nowadays, there are all sorts of corporate anti-corruption uh, rules in place, both external laws and just internal regulations within the companies. Uh, so I've had all sorts of situations where Perfectly legitimate, you know, a couple of USB keys and uh, a a coffee mug, that sort of thing, was refused for being some sort of a business gift. Uh, There's also one where somebody uh, received an unexpected package, standard company policy, it was blown up in the parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) As it contained some sort of electronics that set off a detector, you know, USB key, something completely innocent, but. It set off a detector and standing orders so they just blew it up that, that can also go badly badly wrong but yeah i mean every vendor i've worked for we we try very very hard to figure out you know what's someone going to want and get access to the people who are most likely to want what we're selling i've, I've never been in a position where everyone is going to want my thing it's always been a fairly niche uh, type of setup. I sell very, very expensive products that only a few people need, but the idea is that the people who need them really, really need them. And so it's all about identifying those people and, you know, trying to grab them at the time that they're making a decision. There's no point going to someone when they're midway through a five-year contract that they already paid for up front that? they can say, that's very interesting, called me in two years.
1: Say, And I think it's, you know, it's hard vying for attention right now, especially now when there's no conferences, everything's going virtual. So I think you're only, to, you're only going to see more of this. I think this will pick up, unfortunately, for for a lot of these vendors in this market right now, especially for a lot of startups that uh, are trying to vie for attention and, and trying to accumulate sales. And it really depends on on where you work. You know, so I've worked for very large organizations, very small organizations, and trying to vie for that attention, um, you know, it's difficult to, uh, uh, definitely. I, I think you're right, Mike. I think the times have changed though. And so there's got to be a new approach to positioning your product or having somebody just hear you out. Um, in the past, I've done some interesting things. I've had books that have been written by, by certain employees. I'd have them signed perhaps by executives that, that was very effective. And I think that's something that's, I think is decent, but uh, I've seen it go the other side too. So I think, you know, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, you know, some of the other things that are probably going on around. I've seen where, uh, you know, uh, things are positioned and sold and there's points and deals that are held back for events. I I think that's questionable. Uh, You know, but those kind of things cross the line. So I think, I think there's a line and you have to get attention, but um, you know, when do you cross that line, I guess. Right. Yeah. We really don't do the, the event thing. Right. I know there's a lot of
2: companies out there that want to go to events, but you know, if we look at the COVID world for us, I think uh, at least the way I see it, I, I, I think it's, it's a little better for us that, events are moving online. Why? Because then it gives us a bit more, um, you, you know, it's, it's tough to pick and choose what employees go to events, but now with everything moving online, I think the employees who wanna go will go and learn and we won't get yeah, harassed by, by vendors who are there. I, I mean, the, the, the sad take of it is a lot of vendors are still sending us tons of emails, trying cold calls, and the fact of the matter is the emails get deleted, 90% of it, unless by some fluke, you send me an email on something that is is really bothering us. Or, uh, and from a phone perspective, we're not answering phones anymore. I mean, you know, most people I know in, in uh, that do IT for a non-IT company... Like they are not answering their desk phone because it's just vendor call after vendor call. It's like telemark- when you get a telemarketing call at home during dinner time it it's kind of the same thing. It's like hard to shake these people next thing you know you're getting inundated with more and more, and you know there's work to focus on there's there's no time there's no time for this
0: oh definitely uh, to some extent, it depends on what kind of product you're selling right? I remember at one event I was in my vendor booth and the booth next to us i think you were there zach uh the uh, the booth next was was just doing a roaring trade because they were giving away little miniature remote controlled helicopters and the pitch was you could uh, roll up play a little ipad game that made you enter all your personal details and you know one in however many players would walk away with this uh remote controlled helicopter but it was pretty frequent that someone would win and so it was a line just around the block Uh, people who wanted uh, the little remote control helicopter. And so during one of the breaks, I asked the people in the booth and said, you know, does this add up for you? Because I'm sure you got a bulk discount buying these uh, little toys. But that's got to add up. That's got to be a significant budget. So they told me that, yes, given the rate of conversion that they got and the lifetime value of a customer to them, they assumed that plenty of these people would just take the remote control helicopter, thank you very much, unsubscribe from the email, never hear from them again. But enough of them were interested. It was such a mass product in that particular market that the, the conversion worked. Our approach was completely different. In our booths, we were much more spear phishing. So what I was doing was standing in my booth right beside this queue of people and eyeballing people's badges. And I would pick out the couple of companies that I was interested in, and I would see someone come by from one of those companies and say, Hey, while you're waiting in line for the helicopters, do you mind telling me something about what you do? Have a little conversation, see if they were in one of those very few interesting roles that, that I was interested in talking to. Because that let me also protect my time as a vendor. I, I don't want to go chasing everybody when I've had no upfront that 99% of people are not interested in what I'm selling. A quick no is almost as valuable to me as a quick yes, because it lets me move on to the next conversation. Uh, What I hate is those drawn out ones. And as we were saying in the pre-show, what I really, really hated was when I'd stalked someone on LinkedIn and I'd listened to an interview that they'd done and read their Twitter feed and crafted some email that was perfect for them. I know you have a project. To do a project like this, uh, I'm fairly sure you're going to need something shaped roughly like this. It so happens that I have a widget, the same shape as the hole that you have, and I did something very successful with your competitor or another player in uh, the same market, but in a different place, whatever it was. Let's talk. And it would just disappear into a black hole. How does that work from your end? The, I'm sure you get a thousand. Yeah, the, the real issue there
2: is that by the time we're by the time we're talking publicly about, let's say a project, or by the time, you know, everybody knows we're doing a project at that point, everybody knows, and we have a game plan. So we've done maybe an RFP and have one or two vendors selected to do, you know, section A, section B. And, and then you might have a vendor who comes in and goes, Hey, we know you're doing this. This is what you really need. But at that point, I mean, we also have this relationship with these two vendors that have gone through an RFP process. It's not like we're going to you know, take work away from them to give it to someone else. I mean, we're really committed. And and, and to to overlay that, I mean, e- either it's like an add-on service that we really need, or but that's a really hard sell once a project is going, uh, unless your project starts to go sideways, which, okay, might happen, but typically doesn't if you've done the right amount of planning. I mean, sure, there's going to be bumps and, and, and so on and so forth. What's interesting is, you know, the, the company that was in the booth next to you, they're collecting that data, right? But it's, I mean, I I don't know how actionable it is, right? Because it's just a bunch of people that want to fly a helicopter, whatever it was. Let's go online, right? So if you take a consumer brand, you know, Facebook, so on, I mean, they are targeting ads towards you, right? They're gathering data. They know who you are. They know what you're looking at. Take their acquisition this week at Giphy. You know, people might say like, why are they buying Giphy? But they're building a news organization. They know that certain news outlets are looking at pictures of uh, someone in a political place. So they know that there's going to be a story that's going to break about that political person. What are the vendors doing to get that kind of knowledge? Like, search history from certain companies, IT employees. I mean, isn't that available? Or is nobody able to build that data set and action that data set? isn't that where the value is for you
0: guys? Oh, absolutely. And let's also keep back some of the good stuff from the vendor side, because I think there's a second episode to be done where we give the vendor perspective. But yeah, absolutely. The data gathering is key. And it's really obvious to you as a customer when that, that work is not being done.
1: That's that's a good point. I was going to bring up and really ask you, Mike, I think the way you consume or the way that companies will be consuming in the future is changing. It's changing right now. You have marketplace for AWS, you know, Azure, Google Cloud, about, you know all, all these different cloud companies, for example, right? So how is this going to evolve? I mean, do we really need a slew of account managers out there trying to sling this product, or does that change? I remember I was I was at a startup uh, seven eight years ago. And startups are very unique. You have to have very succinct stories. You have to have, you know, an exact fit. You have to know how to message, where to message to. Your time is is invaluable. You said it earlier, Dominic, you have to, you know, if you're not interested. You have to move on fast, right? You have to fail fast. Um, but there came a point where our CEO, and I think this was brilliant at the time, said, you know, we're we're going to be fine. Let's just work with SEs that uh, we're going to call them technical account managers. And we went forward with this model, and I thought it was very successful because you knew the product you know, um, companies seem to trust SEs a little bit more than some of the account managers and the value. I
0: wonder why. Yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, Dominic, it was very successful. Uh, not everybody's a fit for that. I'll give you that, but you know, you find out which ones are and you convert them and the success rate was, uh, was astronomical. But I, I wonder, I'm not trying to say that there's no need for account managers, not at all, but I wonder what, what that looks like in the future. Uh, i uh, just curious, Mike, what you see in Dominic. Yeah, please chime in.
0: Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. And just to extend that, and then Mike will give you a chance to answer. But I've seen that model, and I've seen a swing maybe back a little bit where the salesperson is expected to be much more technical, much more into the weeds of their products than they might have been a few years ago even. And the pre salesperson, whatever they're called the application engineer, solution architect, whatever you, is still present, but is involved only in much more deep questions or hands on activities. But the salesperson still has a role. Especially in enterprise sales, large company sales to architects of the deal such that it makes sense so they do some financial engineering so that how the deal is structured makes sense for how the customer wants to buy. How much of a reality is there to that, do you think Mike?
2: You know one thing that and, and I can only talk to it about what I see here here in the US and, and what I see from from here in the Carolinas where, where I sit. I think you know it's it's interesting when you meet account managers, right? Because you'll have some really brilliant account managers and, and they can talk strategy and so on and so forth. But then you start to meet the extended team and it's like, "Well, these are the people who are going to execute and the people who are execute you, you know you're you're going to end up in trouble and or or it's vice versa, right? You have a you you have an account manager who's not so strong and then the behind the scenes it's like great talent. I think it's never like you're going to see the the, from the sales to the uh, to the execution that that's great. I I think that's that's hard to find in some places, and I'm always like hesitant because I want to meet people. I want to hey tell tell me who are you selling to? I want to talk to those businesses because that's how you know um, you you know what's really happening, right? Because I mean they'll they'll tell you whatever you want to hear. I mean at at some point, but I think um, you know what you guys maybe don't realize is. A lot of us in IT are talking to each other about what vendors are doing, how good vendors are, and I think there's vendors who think it's, um, you know, they can, you know, they can tell one business one thing and tell another business, you know, tell one business A, tell one business story B. That's all going to catch up to you, especially in this world where. We're all talking and there are circles of CIOs and, and VP of ITs. We're all talking to each other, understanding what's happening out there. I think that network is probably a network you guys want to get into. I, I come previously from IBM and IBM always said like there's those who are going to want to talk to the very technical people and those who are coming in through the C-suite. And, and those are one of the two roads you're, you're probably taking to, to a big relationship. Right? I, don't, I don't know if you guys see it the same way from like the account managers and the teams that, that come and, and deliver.
1: Well, I think from the, the vendor side, I, I see that and we can save some of this for next week. But, uh, you know, in the past, you know, I've, you know, spoken with my counterparts from other vendors, um, obviously in separate areas, but in the same you know vicinity, whether it's within the data center or within the campus or, you know, the WAN or application or whatever it might be. And we've also done something very similar so i think that sounds like it happens on both sides dominic what do you see
0: yeah agreed there certainly used to be this world where many people would think as long as i get out of town before sundown i can run the same scam in the next town down the road and nobody will know and that's absolutely not the case anymore yeah one of the more interesting models i've seen emerge over the last couple of years is precisely these you know senior it practitioner uh, groups, roundtables, councils, call them what you will, but mediated often by analyst firms. And so the pledge on the part of the analyst firm as the, you know, the middleman in that relationship is to say, dear practitioner, I will introduce you to vendors. Yes. But I guarantee you that they're vendors who A are serious, their products works, so they're somewhat solvent, et cetera, et cetera. but B are relevant to what I know you're doing because we've been talking about it in council. And the pledge to the vendor is the exact mirror image of that. Dear vendor, I'll introduce you to prospective customers, but I've pre-validated them. You don't need to do too much investigation. They are all trying to do projects uh, somewhat in your area. And so you can have a conversation on the merits and those tend to be high value for everyone. That's a model uh, that I really like that has been really successful. And a few companies are doing really well at running.
1: Yeah. I'm going to add one more thing to that. You'd be surprised, even as an analyst, um, there were a couple instances of very large vendors stretching to truth. And I'll just say it lying, um, which would shock you, but it just doesn't happen to, you know, to the customer, right? So just be, know, just know that it happens all the way around. Um, I can't say these vendor names, but yeah, just just outright lies that you go back and you, you research and, Um, you know, whatever it might be, Um, it's it's amazing. This is why
2: I always want to say like, all right, if you're selling me hardware, show me where it's being used. Uh, If you're selling me software, show me where it's being used. Because I I think there's, you know, not experience of mine, but I, I can tell you there are probably companies who have bought a ton of hardware, ton of software and have basically failed at implementing it, or it's sitting either in boxes or they've paid the bill, but they can't get it up and running or implemented. And I'm sure it happens all the time. Have you guys ever experienced something like that? Because you know, I'm convinced it happens, right?
0: Oh, so much, so much. I, and there's the positive version where you can say, afterwards, oh, we beat so-and-so big vendor, even though their stuff was free because it was in the EULA, because what the customer bought was you know, product A, uh, but because of how the big vendor was set up, what they got was a suite that also included B, C, D, E, et etc. et cetera. And you would come in as the little focused startup which had one product. And technically on paper, it was covered, uh, but the customer wasn't using or didn't like that particular component and was more than happy to replace it. So you might have to have some difficult conversations with procurement because on paper that need was covered. Uh, and that's where the professional salesperson comes in because that's not something that essays you know pre-sales engineers whatever uh that's not a conversation they tend to want to get involved in whereas professional sales live and die by that sort of conversation but you could say uh, you could make a killing both in that immediate deal and because forever after you had that notch in your belt oh we displaced big vendor from account uh, even if uh, you know the facts might be a little bit um uh, less clear-cut than that. But here's one that that I have always wanted to ask. So I agree 100% a reference is the best way to sell. The best salesperson is not a salesperson. The best salesperson is a happy user. Uh, If I introduce you to a happy user of my product and you're in the same position as that person, there's an excellent chance that after that conversation you will go ahead and buy, and I have all the stats to back that up. Um, The problem with that is getting people to act as references so setting aside you know the the time commitment uh, i try not to ask my customers to be a reference more than every couple of months because otherwise they stop taking my calls but plenty of companies just have policies we will never be references we will not take calls and can you comment about that even in generalities without getting into specifics of your situation if that's yeah great. i always
2: um so you know um so it's funny I'll do two things to vendors sometimes they'll reference one of their customers and I'll ask like hey is that a referenceable customer because either I'll know that they're not <laughs> and and then I'm thinking on my side like man are they going to reference me because I don't want them to reference me right uh, it, it's like some of these software products that that show you like all their all all the businesses they support Uh, And they might show like a large company, let's say GE, but it might be like, you know, GE, you know, 30,000, 300,000 employees, whatever they are, but there's a group of 10 people using their software and they put that GE logo there, right? So, you know, I always look at that and I kind of laugh like, "Eh, you know, you need to take it. But from a a referenceable side, like I asked like, hey, did you get permission to do that? And also, I mean, if you're giving me a customer that's referenceable, I know that, okay, they're going to love the product, right? If they say something bad... And, and as I'm having a reference call, then I know. Okay, well, that's that's got to be either they don't even know that they have a flaw, or this, you know, this cust this this customer of theirs is is having a hard time kind of being truthful to them or something. Um, which is why I always try to find somebody using a product that, um, you know, I know through my network or elsewhere, and then build my perception of that company, that tool, whatever hardware, software, whatever it is based on that. Right. And I think that word of mouth and it is much stronger than somebody you're going to reference. Right. And, and I don't know how many companies or, or it, people in your area are built on, you know, building kind of a group of, you know, third party evangelists around their products. Um, I I think there's some companies who do it really well right Uh, I mean if you look at um, you know Microsoft they have people who love them and hate them but the people who love them really you know stand on top of a mountain and scream it Um, it's the same thing like Cisco has this like people who kind of love their product stand on the top of a mountain scream how great they are and, and then you'll find also the people who don't right so I think building that is much more powerful for companies, but then it gets harder for the small players, right? I I think there's a big differentiation between big players in this industry and some of the small uh, scrappy startups that we're starting to see.
1: That's right. And they're going to get scrappier, especially in this economy and amidst COVID and the virtual events and not being being able to get out and about. So I think they're going to get scrappier and I think it's challenging for some startups. So I, I think you're right and i think from a from a big
2: company perspective sometimes it's it's hard to go with the smaller players but sometimes there's so much value in the smaller players um that you're starting to see companies take a lot more risk on the smaller players because i mean if you're doing what everybody else is doing you're just a regular company if you want to break apart you got to take certain risk and i think that's where 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 it comes in right
0: i mean it's exactly right uh I'm so happy to hear you say that because it's been an article of faith uh, with me for a few years now. Uh, you know, it used to be, so here's my perspective as a vendor, uh, please correct me as I go, but it used to be that uh, as a big enterprise IT shop, you would buy from one of a handful of mega vendors and they would give you everything. And what you would buy would be, as I was saying earlier, you'd typically be buying for one or maybe two tent pole products that were actually good. But then you got everything else. And the pitch from the vendor was it's all integrated. We've done the work. You don't have to worry about making all these different pieces talk to each other. But what happened a few years ago was it became much easier to do the best of breed thing and get one product that did one thing well and then use REST APIs and OAuth and all of these uh, different bits and pieces to make them talk to each other without that being a massive enterprise integration project that required you to get one of the the big system integrator firms in for 12 months or what have you. And so that enabled uh, people to start taking a risk uh, on these startups. just for that one function that these focused startups were good at. yeah. And, and
1: those benefits outweighed what I wouldn't even call it a risk. Uh, a lot of times I think it's, it's much less risky with some of these startups than it is some of the big box uh, shops, but yeah, I think you're right, Dominic. I think as we focused on the API and we went up the stack um, and really the cloud helped that as well, API driven infrastructure. So I think people started realizing and, and thinking a little bit differently. Mike, I'm curious, uh, let, let's kind of flip the coin and I think you touched on this a little bit, but if you can go into a little bit more, what what makes you give them a chance? You know, what 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 a you know when a startup comes to you or how what, how are they successful with you? What what makes you go out there? Do you do your research? Do you is there a certain pitch? How do they reach you effectively?
2: You know, that's, it's interesting because I I think some of it is yeah we heard of what they're doing, um, they're talking in maybe some industry channels, right? So we're, we're heavy in manufacturing. maybe they they are talking in like manufacturing circles at manufacturing conferences, not IT conferences, right? So that'll make us uh, maybe stop and listen. Um, but also, you know some of it is we do our research, right? It's not so much, I mean typically when you start a relationship, we're doing research trying to find a vendor. Uh, not so much the vendor coming to us, right? And, and then we have a couple of examples. The, the thing that, um, and this is just me speaking, the, the thing I tend to like about some of the smaller players is they're typically not going to nickel and dime me over every little thing, and they're typically great at execution. I mean, there's no scrappy startup that is terrible at execution, or they wouldn't be there, right? Um, typically... Or at least not for long. <laughs> at least not for long. But yeah, exactly. And you know what they probably struggle at is marketing and how to h- how to 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 give their pitch, right? Because I mean, I have worked with some vendors who have been so great, and I'm like, man, if those guys and could tell their story, they would be really like out there, you know? Like they're just so undervalued. That's of course, right. Yeah. They don't they don't realize it at times, and and I think that's where. The advantage now sits on on my side, so it's a bit uh, a a bit of everything. But I think it's also again the way you approach it, Um, and again that comes back to what data do you have on the businesses that you you are targeting. I, I think there's also this this kind of use case that some businesses go through. Right, they're they're looking at one use case, but the use case that really fits them, maybe they really don't want to believe. That that's the industry that they should be looking at because maybe that's not where
1: there's a lot of money. But you know, you've got to start somewhere. And I, I think they struggle with
2: that sometimes, right?
1: It's interesting. I, I know where I'm at right now. One of the focuses is, is marketing, because you're right. It's I think that's a differentiator and reaching that right audience. Um, I like that you said that. And also like what you said about the conferences. I've I've felt now for a little while that, you know, while the tech conferences are great, and Dominic, I'd like your perspective as well, but they're they're wonderful. But those focus conferences, whether it's it could be uh, media vertical, so is it the National Association of Broadcasters, it could be oil and gas, you know, do you go to their, you know, their conferences, uh, you know, I, I think those are just as impactful, but they are missed upon a lot of companies, especially startups. I, I don't see a lot of startups at some of these other conferences. And, and that could be for a multitude of reasons. But um, yeah, Dominic, I think that's an interesting perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's It so happens that right before we got on the podcast, uh, I was reading a post on LinkedIn uh, you know, I live in Italy. And someone on LinkedIn was saying, oh, I've been trying to sell IoT gear to the retail channel in Italy. And I was getting nowhere and I was getting nowhere and I had the best stuff. And I put together all this amazing collateral about how good my IoT gear is. And then I had an epiphany and I was talking to a supermarket chain and I stopped talking about IoT gear. And I started talking about his uh, prosciutto slicing machine. And I said, look, the slicing machine goes down. You can't slice prosciutto. You lose the revenue of slicing the prosciutto for your customers for that day or multiple days until you can get the uh, the service department to come out. Wouldn't it be better if uh, you had something that could, A, tell you instantly that thing has failed, and B, maybe even gather metrics from it continuously and give you an idea when it's going to fail so you can take that machine out of service, get it repaired beforehand. She found the use case for for that and she puts it in terms that that, that buyer wanted that's to hear. Sorry. And so, yeah, that's uh, what I think we need to be doing a lot more of. So the good vendors try to do that. We try to put together these use case stories in the context of a job to be done That's a framework. And we can touch on that when we, we do this the other way around and Mike gets to ask us questions. Um, but we still tend to, we do things like we write these amazing blogs and we put them on our own website. And by the time someone's reading the vendor's website, they're already pretty far along their own personal journey. Most of us need to do a better job of going to where our prospective users already are and putting information out there that they may find useful and interesting and relevant. And that maybe guides them. To investigate us more deeply as vendors and our technology, and make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. So there's a, again there's a framework for that as uh, the day zero. Uh, so before you even get to the day one, the, the first conversation, the first contact point that you have uh, between vendor and prospective customer, you have all of this stuff that's happening. This of uh, uh, you know, it's the dark matter of enterprise sales uh, because it used to be quite invisible. These days, as you were saying, Mike, we have a, a little bit better tracking uh, thanks to the amazing Panopticon that Facebook and Google have built to spy on our every move. Um, but it's uh, it's still an art more than a science, and some people are better than others. I love what you just
1: yes. I love what you just said a little while ago. It, it seems to me as though, especially, you know, I've seen this. To some extent, even where I'm at right now, where everybody wants to just talk about what you do. Here's what we do. Here's what we do. We do this so well. Here's what we do as opposed to stepping back, and and Mike, I do not mean to interrupt you, but i like your thoughts on this, as opposed to stepping back and taking an interest in the business, maybe doing a little research. I don't even know if that happens anymore, but I used to do that. I used to research these companies that I wanted to target and understand their business, understand the people, and really focus on that, and I found success in that. So, uh, you know what, that analogy was spot on, and I, I take to it, and it resonates because I see that right now in, in a lot of startups, right? It's it's everybody wants to shout from the mountaintop about what they do well this is what we do we this is what we do we're this we're this we're this and sometimes that message is even a little bit too deep and too technical for that first conversation and so they expect people to start coming to the bottom of the mountain and and listening to them and they're not and they're wondering well why aren't they coming i have a great message i have this great story and nobody wants to hear it when in fact it's it's not about it's not about you it's about them and maybe, you know, they need to approach it differently. So uh, that really strikes home with me, Dominic, because I'm seeing that uh, as well. Um, go ahead, Mike. Everybody should be passionate about what they
2: do, right? And, and hopefully we don't have any unpassionate people. But I, I think you guys, as, as as selling to somebody, ask them to tell you what they're doing because they will be passionate about that and tell you every last detail about what they're doing, what their company does, so on and so forth. The thing that doesn't always resonate is like, Hey, you know, you can try to sell whatever you want, but you know, the one thing that's really important is like ROI and and payback period. And it has to be short, right? I think this is where people are having some struggles uh, because it, it, you know, they don't realize how long that arc or that
0: curve is. Yeah, exactly. That was one of my epiphanies when I started to seriously think about enterprise selling. If you can show, and you have to show it, it has to be hard, but if you can show ROI inside of 12 months, what you're doing is you're basically giving someone free money. <laughs> and uh, everything starts mm-hmm. to bend towards that.
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Okay, so I think uh, that's... Do you have a closing thought, Mike? Uh, because I think we've gone long enough, we should wrap this, and then maybe next week we can do it the other way around. I think
2: it's just, um, you know stop the the email blasting the cold calling understand what those businesses are are going through and what they need um truly um don't try to make uh something you're selling fit but yeah vice versa i I would say that's uh that's the core of it so and and i think a lot of it is gonna a lot of the marketing um is going to change uh within the next year here so as as the consumer market proliferates enterprise, right? Or starts to change the way enterprise looks at it, I would say.
0: Yeah, it turns out not everyone needs uh, machine learning blockchain on the 5G network, (laughs) whatever the latest buzzword. Exactly, exactly. Fantastic. So yeah, thank you. This has been illuminating for me. And uh, let's hope that when we do this the other way around, we can give you some insight into the murky, murky world of uh, selling software. Fantastic.
2: Thanks, guys. Had a blast. We'll do it again next week. Enjoy.